Hey, my name is Cassidy villaburn Barakis, and I'm the Indigenous Programming Coordinator at CFUV 101.9. One sunny morning in August, I sat down with Catherine Lafferty to talk about four pieces of her writing. Catherine Lafferty, whose Dene name is Katlia, is a Yellowknife Dene author, reporter, law student, and mother. She is the author of Northern Wildflower, published by Fernwood in 2018, and Land, Water, Sky, published by Fernwood in 2020. She also writes for the Indigenous, the Taiyi, the Briar Patch, and other publications. In our conversation, we explored four excerpts of her work, Northern Wildflower, Land, Water, Sky, This House is Not a Home, and Firekeeper. In these pieces, Catherine explores the concept of justice. In each story, the different characters yearn for justice, are controlled by themes of injustice, endure injustices and reclaim justice, and wrestle with the personal responsibility of what justice means. Here is that conversation with Catherine Lafferty. Do you want to start out by introducing yourself? My name is Catherine Lafferty. My Dene name is Katfian, and I am Yellowknife's Dene First Nation from Sanbake, Northwest Territories. How did you get started in writing? I began writing at a very young age um, and then really started honing in on my writing when I began working for the local newspaper. Uh, Northern News Services for the Yellowknife when I was 16. And how does Dene storytelling connect into your storytelling? Dene's storytelling is very much a part of um, a lot of my influence in writing, um, particularly in the writing of Landwater Sky. I referred to a lot of the stories I had heard growing up about certain legends um, of the North. And so it very much plays a part in the inspiration for my writing. I was wondering if you could give us a little intro to Northern Wildflower. So Northern Wildflower is uh, considered a memoir. Uh, It was published with Fernwood Publishing in 2018. And um, really it's more of a tribute to my grandmother who raised me and it's a tribute to the Northwest Territories. And I wanted to write Northern Wildflower to um, help other young Indigenous women relate to uh, my experiences growing up as an Indigenous person in the North. My journey began on Easter Sunday in the early 80s. My parents were at a drive through theatre in a small northern Alberta oil town when I made my debut into this world. I proved to be fiery from the start. I had light red hair and eyebrows that would turn bright red when I cried. I was born with a passion that I couldn't hide. 
I get my auburn traits from my dad, a freckle-faced redhead from the East Coast, and I get my brazen personality from my mother, a black-haired beauty one generation away from being born in a teepee. I cried nights on end while they walked the floors with me in their small apartment. My mom often reminds me that no one ever wanted to babysit me because I cried too much. I was colicky and inconsolable. My mom would rock me in my homemade dene swing made from a sheet, some rope, and two sticks, which hung from one corner of the ceiling above her bed to the other. A dene invention was the only thing that would help me fall asleep. No wonder I like hammocks so much. It's safe to say that I was a restless child from my entrance into this world, and I've carried this feeling of yearning in my heart throughout my life. I have a constant irritation with the status quo, and I'm rarely satisfied. I always want more, not in the sense of material things, but in the sense of wanting a better world, a just world, especially for those who grew up like me, knowing what it's like to live as an outsider on your own territory, knowing what it feels like to grow up in a system that doesn't accept you, the same system that forced you to be dependent on it. I want there to be a better world for Indigenous people who have felt what it's like to live in a society that has already developed a preconceived notion that we are failures, that we have a meek future, that we will end up drunk like the parents that couldn't raise us, that we will end up abusing the system with our countless needs of taxpayer dollars, that we are not worthy to eat at the big table, that we should be thankful and consider ourselves lucky enough to live off the crumbs they give us. There has got to be something better for those who know what it's like to feel hopeless and disingenuously pitied by those who watch us fall through the cracks because they believe there's no hope for us. We aren't even considered human after all. The worst part is that some Indigenous people also have this perception of themselves and where they come from because they have lost their cultural identities through social conditioning efforts. I want justice. I want to take back our stolen identities. Our pride has been ripped and torn to shreds from the years of deliberate trauma that was served to us in the form of righteous, all-knowing authority. The wicked rules that have been written in a heavy ink are made to look like they can't be erased, but those rules can be broken, those policies can be amended, those laws can be overturned, and those words that hold us down can be burned. I want our men to be warriors again, and our women to be safe and respected. I want our land back, our homes back, our families back, our health. We were forced to detach from everything we knew right down to the very core of who we are. I want things back to the way they once were. The Dene once lived in harmony without interruption and influence, and that worked well for us. I won't be fully satisfied until I see the day that we are no longer told to do things any other way but the way we know, our way. I won't be content until that day that I feel I belong on my own soil. Until the day that I don't have to work twice as hard to get that management job, even though I have a higher education. Until the day that I don't walk past the post office and see my relatives on the street being ridiculed and stereotyped for being intoxicated and homeless. Until the day I never hear another Indian joke. Until the day that I don't have to worry that my son will end up in jail because he was profiled and discriminated against. Until the day I don't have to worry that my daughter will be abused because she's considered worthless in the eyes of those who feel they are superior to her. Until the day I don't have to argue with someone when I hear them say, why can't you just get over it? Until the day that everyone understands why we won't get over it. Until then, I will not rest. I will keep fighting the good fight to make sure that I see a change in this world. Until the silenced voices can speak again until we can make our own rules, and until we can be sure that no one takes advantage of us anymore. I didn't know these injustices existed when I was brought into this world, 
but I could feel them through my mother's womb, and as time went on, I inevitably encountered them in my everyday life. My family grew up constantly struggling on our own land, when we should have been treated like royalty, with the respect and dignity we deserved. Instead, we were forced to assimilate, often violently. Our minds, bodies, and self-determination were not and are still not respected to this day. Our vision of our treaty is continually our vision of our treaty is continually erased, and we are always having to stand up for our rights, even in the most mundane circumstances. It's tiring. I don't think our people ever realize the full extent of how the future would, for them would unravel. No one except the elders could have predicted the impacts that would send a generational ripple of devastation throughout Canada. The elders always talk about how money encroached upon their livelihood. The few elders that are still alive today witnessed firsthand how our people slowly started to become more and more reliant on it. Money eventually became too powerful of a force to stop. Money doesn't grow on trees, my mum would say, and I would say, yes it does, it's made of paper. It took me a long time to realize that money was earned through working for other people and not for ourselves. In the olden days when our people worked, they worked with their hands on the land because it was the only way to survive. They worked hard for their food and shelter and they enjoyed it. There was no such thing as being idle. Then something happened when money crept into the north. Our people did not fit into the new working world because they had little to no formal education, and they weren't readily accepted into the mold that was determined fitting enough to obtain the jobs that were created when the government and the mining industries welcomed themselves in. The north became a rewarding scene for southerners seeking adventure, new beginnings, and prosperity. This left little room for the Dene, who did not require those things to be happy, and almost overnight the Dene way of living almost disappeared throughout and almost overnight the Dene way of living disappeared through the exclusiveness and overnight the Dene way of living almost disappeared through the exclusiveness of those who celebrate money. As a child I couldn't grasp the concept of or the importance of money and how it was something that people strive to obtain all their lives. As an adult I still don't understand why most of us spend our lives racing to get to the top breaking our backs in the process and struggling to make ends meet only to end up counting down until retirement. There has got to be more to life. I want a deeper fulfillment. I want my soul to be full of purpose and substance. I don't want to drag myself out of bed every morning cringing at the thought of the work week ahead of me. I want to jump out of bed every morning knowing that I'm doing what I love without restriction, without worrying about money. Unfortunately, until that day comes, money makes the world go round and enriches our lives with a false sense of happiness, materialism, and security. Maybe I have come to think that it shouldn't have to be this way because of my humble beginnings. I have in my life first and foremost are I'm a mother um, but also I have been recently driven to um, seek justice for um, Indigenous peoples through my um, education in law and so what I really hope to do with my um, 
career is to advocate for Indigenous peoples um, on the many, many injustices that Indigenous people uh, face today. What were some barriers that you faced uh, writing your memoir? A lot of judgment was passed uh, about um, the possibility of me ruining my reputation by sharing these stories that of, of the experiences that I've been through. And um, I got a lot of um, negative feedback from different um, people in the publishing industry, in the mainstream publishing industry, that were worried for me that I would ruin my reputation. Um, and also, too, that, you know, I was too young maybe to be writing a memoir or, you know, there was a lot of that going around and also a lot of lateral violence amongst my peers um, where it was kind of like, who does she think she is? What makes her so special to be writing a memoir? And things like that, that I really had to kind of try to block um, so that it wouldn't prevent me from going forward with publishing. Hmm. Do you think the purpose of your life is to be of service to others? I've always been of service in some sort of way, and um, I really think I've found my purpose in life, which is um, to kind of be a platform to be able to voice um, concerns among the Indigenous communities um, and really shine a light on the many issues that are that people especially in the northwest territories are facing um and so if i can help in any way i that's what i devote my time and energy to i was wondering if you could give a brief uh intro to land water sky what's it what's it about so land water sky is pretty much the age-old battle between good and evil um it has the elements of Land, Water, Sky, obviously, um, and I've really taken inspiration from the um, oral histories of the Dene people here in the Northwest Territories for character development, and um, it's, it's a composite novel which has many different moving parts, but each character um, is interwoven in some way and connected in some way um, to battle a force um, that is stronger than them but together they can um, hopefully conquer that and um, it takes place in the very like from time immemorial pretty much to the present to the future Working Culture Bread is a neighborhood bread and coffee shop with a weekly rotating menu of bread and other treats. Try their sesame and rye loaves, dark chocolate sourdough loaf, pretzels, or pizzas fresh out of the oven. All breads are sourdough, organic, and vegan, unless otherwise specified. Give them a taste at 2506 Douglas Street or find them online at workingculturebread.com. They were up to no good. The three of them were out way later than they should have been.
They all grew up in the same type of home, the kind where their parents weren't in the picture very much. They were typical teenagers for the most part, bored in a small town, except they had more gumption than most. Nelson, the oldest of the three, devised a plan to steal a car from the only dealership in their small northern town. He staked out the lot, watching the shady salesmen rent cars to tourists and sell lemons to suckers. Trying to look inconspicuous, but failing miserably, Nelson looked through the salesman's window facing the parking lot. The man saw Nelson with his hands in his pockets and grumbled, not another loiterer. Skipping school, Nelson wandered around the parking lot looking at the expensive sports cars whistling openly whenever someone walked by. A few minutes later, the salesman stepped out in his pointy fake leather shoes and ill-fitted brown striped suit, careful not to lose his balance on the slippery pavement covered in spring slush. What can I help you with, young man? Nelson looked over his shoulder, thinking the salesman was talking to someone else. He was too stoned to realize that he wasn't invisible. Uh, just looking, Nelson said, trying to come up with a quick lie. Aha, you'll have to save up to buy one of those babies. You might be more interested in one of these for a starter. The salesman brought Nelson over to an old beater and hit the rusty hood, helping to further loosen the bumper that was already half falling off. I was once your age and wanted nothing more than to have wheels too, he continued. Yeah, maybe one day, Nelson said slyly, his eyes half closed and bloodshot. Nelson's sloppy stakeout had been unexpectedly successful. He saw where the salesman kept the keys to the vehicles. They were hung in rows in a locked steel cabinet in the office next to a picture of the salesman standing on a beach under a palm tree with a fruity drink in his hand. Nelson knew he couldn't chance starting one of the cars without a key. He had tried hot-wiring a few cars a time or two in the parking lot of his rundown apartment building, but he found it difficult to get them going. The newer makes are built differently. It's hard to reach the wires under the steering wheel. We've got to get those keys, he explained to his best friend Jack. They were sipping coffee in an all-night diner as Jack listened intently to Nelson go over the details of their planned heist. Nelson leaned over the table, arms crossed, and explained how they would break into the dealership that evening and steal the keys so they could make their getaway. Jack, you and I'll go around the back. Colleen, you wait outside, he directed. Why do I have to wait outside, she asked, suddenly annoyed as she slumped back with her arms crossed. Jack piped in to prevent another argument between the two of them. Because it's too dangerous for you, Colleen, okay? Just let us do the work. He tried to put his arm around Colleen, but she swatted it away and slumped further down into her seat. She wanted to be a part of the action, but felt like she was being left out because she was a girl. She rolled her eyes and looked away, ignoring the two. A few minutes later, Colleen interjected again. What are we going to do when we get there? My dad will set us up. He said he's got work for me, Nelson said confidently. Oh yeah, what kind of work? Your dad took off a long time ago. How do you even know where to find him? I just do, okay? He called me a few weeks ago and told me he's got a job for me. Now shut up. Colleen gave up arguing. She leaned back in and turned up the volume on her headphones. Nelson was telling the truth. His dad had called him out of the blue just weeks before. Son, not a boy anymore, are you? Why don't you come to the city and see your old man? I've got some errands for you to run. Nelson was all too eager to reunite with his dad. His mother was never home. She was either in the bar or the bingo hall, and there was nothing preventing him from going. All right, but how am I going to get there? Nelson asked. I'm sure you'll find a way. He hung up without a goodbye. Although Nelson had his eye on the most expensive car on the lot, the white sports car with the rollover bars, he didn't care which one they got just as long as they got away with it. He wanted to get out of town and never look back, following in the footsteps of his father. Jack and Colleen had been dating for a few months but had known each other since they started grade school. Colleen was only tagging along because of Jack. She was disinterested in Nelson's plan to steal a car and didn't think that they were really going to be able to pull it off. 
Still, Colleen was stuck to Jack like glue and followed him everywhere. So when she found out he was trying to leave town, there was no way he was going without her. The three of them sat in the coffee shop well into the night, planning their getaway. Jack and Nelson tried to keep their voices down as they went over any possible loopholes in their scheme, and when they were confident they had a good plan, they found the courage to go through with it. They walked the back alleys leading to the dealership from the coffee shop, wired and jewelry from the endless free coffee refills. Colleen kept her promise and waited outside, keeping watch while Nelson and Jack busted in through the back door. They entered the large parking garage where the one transit bus in town was parked. Nelson half expected an alarm to go off, but the dealer was too cheap to purchase a security system. They weren't looking to rob the place for money, but when Jack saw the cash box inside the bus, he went straight for it. He ripped it out of the console and smashed it on the ground, trying to bust it open while Nelson ran to the cabinet that hung on the wall in the salesman office. He pried the thin metal lid with his crowbar and like magic it flew open, exposing rows of keys. Nelson snatched a handful and tossed them to Jack, who had to catch them with two hands. Here, try them all till you find a fit, Nelson said. They ran out the front door and through the parking lot, ducking out of sight from the odd vehicle that drove by in the night. I didn't think you guys were really going to do it, Colleen said wide-eyed. Keep your voice down, Nelson snapped. Jack fumbled with the keys and threw a set at Colleen. Here, try starting those ones, he pointed with a nod of his chin in the direction of the used cars. The first car Colleen tried started like a gem. It was the same old car the salesman tried to pawn off on Nelson earlier that day. Colleen honked the horn of the little blue four-door, the opposite of the car Nelson had in mind, but it would do. Jack and Nelson ran over to her. Are you crazy? Do you want us to get caught? Move over. Nelson slid into the driver's side. Colleen jumped into the back seat and Jack opened the passenger drawer, trying to stay low. Nelson put the car into reverse and sped out of town on the only highway leading south as they all screamed with adrenaline. Nelson had never driven other than when his dad asked him to take the wheel on a hunting trip when he was just a young boy, one of the only memories Nelson had of his dad. The unpaved highway was new to him, but he was anything but cautious as he sped fearlessly down the dark gravel road that led out of town towards a new life. Colleen was the only one wearing her seatbelt. Jack was too busy to care about his as he fiddled with the locked cash box that had dented when he tried smashing it open. Once he was finally able to pry it open, he was disappointed. It's just a bunch of change, he said when he discovered a few rolls of coins and loose bills inside. Better than nothing. We'll use it for gas, Nelson said, but it was then that he realized he hadn't fully thought through the plan. As meticulous as he was at planning their escape, Nelson didn't think any further than the point of stealing the car. He half expected they would fail, but now that they had gotten away, he had to think quickly about how they were going to make it to the city without running out of gas. They had no food, no water, and no money other than the bit of change that would only be enough for a quarter tank if they were lucky. Nelson cranked the tunes, trying to forget about his worries, and they all stared straight ahead into the darkness that hung in the middle of the night. It was spring, and the snow on the ground had turned to brown slush that pulled the front end of the car towards the ditch when they turned sharp corners. Even though Nelson was tired, he was alert and leaned on the wheel whenever he felt the car drift too far to one side. Colleen was getting sleepy and felt safe enough with Nelson's driving that she undid her seatbelt so she could lie down in the back seat. Jack was already asleep even though the loud rock music on the radio blared through the speakers. When they reached the area where the highway lost connection to the outside world, the radio switched to static. Nelson quickly turned it down and slowed the car in the ghostly silence that crept in around them. Colleen shot up in the back seat. What is it? She cried. Nothing. It's fine, Nelson said, trying to act all-knowing. He picked up his speed, barreling through the darkness until he saw a woman standing in the headlights no more than ten feet in front of the car. What the fu- he yelled and slammed on the brakes. The car couldn't take the sudden stop and slid on the loose gravel as it fishtailed side to side. 
Colleen didn't know what to do. It was too late for her to put her seatbelt on, so when she felt the car flip over, she put her hands up and pushed on the inside of the roof with all her might in hopes it might prevent the roof from caving in and crushing them. When the car finally stopped rolling, they were upside down in the ditch. It felt like hours had gone by, but after a few seconds, Colleen broke the silence with the ringing in her ears. She asked Jack, are you okay? Jack moved at the sound of her voice and groaned in pain. I think I'm okay, you? I think so. I'm scared, Jack. We gotta get out of here, Jack said, nudging Nelson to wake up. Nelson, get up, buddy. Nelson slowly came to and was in an instant state of panic when he realized where he was. He tried kicking open the door, but it was jammed shut. We're stuck, he yelled. Jack crawled out the passenger window, cutting himself up as he scraped against the broken glass. Come on, he said, reaching for Colleen. You've got to crawl out. The doors won't open. Jack got most of the glass out of the opening with the sleeve of his sweater, but Colleen was still afraid. She didn't want to get out of the car at all and into the dark of the night, but she had no other choice. They had to get away quickly or face getting caught. Nelson made his way out of the car and sat on the side of the road, staring off into the distance, his teeth chattering. Get it together, buddy, Jack said as he stood in front of Nelson, putting his hands on his shoulders and shaking him. It's not your fault. We need to get out of here and start walking. I saw something, Nelson said. What are you talking about? I saw it too, Colleen said. It was a woman, right? Nelson just nodded. What are you guys talking about? Where is she then? Jack turned around in the darkness with his arms wide open. His question was answered when a large gust of wind flew past them, making the hair on their arms stand up. Whatever it was, it was too swift for them to catch sight of, especially in the dark. The morning sun was barely coming up over the horizon, making the highway in the distance look like a wavy, fiery illusion. What was that? Jack asked fearfully as he held on to Colleen. He couldn't tell if she was shivering from the cold or from fear. Let's just get out of here and start walking, he said, trying to stay calm. As they started walking towards the pink sunrise that was peeking out from the east, they could see the shadow of a woman weaving in and out through the trees that lined the ditch. They came together in the middle of the road, trying to keep the same pace and looking straight ahead, pretending not to notice their stalker but it was evident they were not alone. Colleen glanced back and noticed a trail of blood behind them. She looked to see where it was coming from and saw blood dripping steadily down Nelson's neck from the back of his head. Nelson, you're bleeding. Nelson didn't know he was injured until he felt his head and looked at the blood on his fingertips. How bad is it? Nelson asked. Jack ripped off the sleeve of his shirt and tied it around Nelson's head like a bandana. It's just a scratch, he lied, and they kept walking, trying to get away from the woman who was following them. They walked for what seemed like miles until Nelson couldn't go on any further. He began to sway and his walk became unsteady. He slurred his words and said weakly, I need to rest for a bit. Jack and Colleen shot each other the same worried look. They didn't want to stop and take a chance on what was lurking in the trees. Hang in there, bud. Cars will be coming soon, Jack said. Jack hoped to see a vehicle as soon as the first ferry of the day docked. It would only be a matter of time until they would see a fleet of cars coming their way on the commute to town from the other side of the river. They would have to hitch a ride back to Coppertown and get Nelson to the hospital. Just a bit more to go, Nelson. There should be a car soon. Hang in there, buddy, Jack said over and over, but Nelson couldn't go on any further. He plopped down onto the middle of the road and his full weight came down on them all at once, too heavy for Jack and Colleen to carry. Jack, do something, Colleen screamed, but it was too late. The entity that had been preying on them in the trees had seen its opportunity and was on the move, honing in on its prey. The female figure walked out of the woods and onto the road. Jack and Colleen stood in horror as the woman stopped in front of Nelson and raised a dagger above her head. Stop, Colleen yelled, but it was too late. The woman drove the blade into Nelson's heart. Jack fell to the ground and helplessly crawled backwards away from the mad woman. Run, Colleen. He got to his feet and ran behind Colleen, but the woman didn't go after them. Instead, she slowly turned and walked back into the woods, dragging Nelson by his feet. 
Jack and Colleen ran as fast as they could down the middle of the highway until they saw a pickup truck coming towards them. Flailing their arms desperately, they screamed, Help! Help! When the truck pulled over, they wasted no time jumping in. What in the world are you kids doing out in the middle of the highway? The driver asked. Our friend, someone killed him, Colleen said, trying not to cry. What are you talking about? The driver asked angrily. Is this some kind of a joke? Please believe us, he was attacked, Jack said. Okay, calm down, you two. Where's your friend now? He asked as he drove down the highway. She took him into the woods, Colleen cried, and put her hand over her mouth, realizing how unbelievable it sounded. There, it was right there, Jack pointed. The driver stopped. What the hell? He saw for himself the turned-over vehicle in the distance and the pool of blood on the road in front of them. You said someone's got your friend? He asked, trying to be sure he was hearing things right. Both Jack and Colleen nodded in fear. Wait here. He left the engine running as he walked around to the back of the truck. He opened the tailgate and grabbed for his shotgun and walked carefully to the side of the road. He squinted, looking into the tree line, on guard and ready to fire. Colleen was too petrified to get out of the vehicle, but Jack got out and yelled Nelson's name repeatedly. Holding the back of his head with both hands, he paced the road, looking into the woods every few seconds, hoping to see his friend walk out unharmed. Jack and Colleen watched as the man scanned the woods, but he gave up after a few minutes, complaining to himself as he lowered his gun. Crazy damn kids must be on drugs or something. He got back in the vehicle and asked, You sure you didn't hit a damn moose? There's a lot of blood on the road. Jack and Colleen didn't know what more to say. The man clearly didn't believe them. They hitched a ride the rest of the way to town, looking back every few seconds for their friend. The man dropped them off at the police station and sped away. He wanted no part in their mischief. Jack and Colleen walked into the station and explained what happened to Nelson, confessing their part in stealing the car. It's true. Why won't you believe us? Our friend was murdered, Jack hollered and jumped up from his chair. Easy, kid. Don't get too excited or we'll keep you in here longer, one of the officers said and pushed Jack back down into the chair. Jack's hands were handcuffed from behind and he lost his balance and fell onto the floor. The officers on duty stood around the frightened kids in the interrogation room, getting a good kick out of their far-fetched story. To make sure they were doing their due diligence, the police put Jack and Colleen in the back of their cruiser and asked them to show them where the car had flipped, showing more interest in the stolen car than Nelson. When they arrived at the scene, they were surprised to find that the kids had been telling the truth. When the police found the stolen vehicle tipped over in the ditch, they opened an investigation. Samples of the blood on the ground were taken, but no search party was sent out to look for Nelson, and no missing person report was ever filed. Nelson's body was never found. The only evidence of his murder was the blood on the ground where his body had been dragged away. The police sent out a tow truck to bring the wrecked vehicle to the junkyard. Jack and Colleen were charged with car theft and breaking and entering, but since they were minors, they weren't sentenced to jail time. Instead, they were given community service hours at the local rec centre. After the accident, rumours circulated about the woman on the highway who could be seen dressed in old tattered clothing causing accidents. kids in this excerpt based on your experiences the youth in this novel are definitely based on real life experiences that I've had or that people close to me have had um, again it's kind of goes back to being able to um, see yourself in in a story uh, which a lot of indigenous peoples don't really have the opportunity to see themselves in the way that is 
authentic and true um, and not uh, stereotyped. How do you feel about the role of law enforcement in the North? Uh, well, the, the role of law enforcement goes way back to the um, establishment of the Indian Act in the uh, late 1800s. And um, it's been a, a kind of a point of contention for Indigenous peoples. Um, there's a lack of trust with law enforcement, and um, that still needs uh, repair uh, in the North. And when we have um, officers coming in, that are not aware of the cultural history here in the North that poses a lot of problems. Um, and Indigenous people are already very um, overrepresented in the justice system as it is, um, often being tried for petty crimes um, and criminalized for behaviors that really shouldn't be criminalized. Um, you know, there are a lot of solutions that can be explored, including bringing in the Gladu. Um, system to the Northwest Territories, especially because the Northwest Territories is comprised of <clears throat> um, over 50% of the population is Indigenous peoples here. So it's really important to make sure to respect that. You draw a lot of inspiration of Denny stories with this story, and I was wondering how do you weave Denny stories into your writing? So that was really difficult um, to do because I was a bit fearful um, to do that in a way that would come across as being um, like taking away from the original story. But then I was taught that um, our stories are moving stories. They're not um, stuck in the past. They're always evolving. And um, as long as we have permission, um, we are able to use those stories and, as teachings. And so I tried to do that in Land, Water, Sky as best as I could, and I made sure to um, seek out the permission of community members that I knew were respected, um, particularly elders in the community that would give me the, um, the go-ahead through the pr proper procedures for protocol. <laughs> this has been the first part of the conversation with Catherine Lafferty. To catch the second part, tune in at the same time next week. Or for the full conversation, visit cfuvpodcasts.com. This episode was created by Catherine Lafferty and myself, and the podcast was produced by CFUV with financial support from the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the only organization mandated to provide financial support to nonprofit radio stations in Canada. CFUV is a non-profit radio station broadcasting from the University of Victoria campus on the traditional, unceded, and unsurrendered territories of the Wasainich and Lekwungen people. Visit CFUVpodcasts.com or search for CFUV wherever you get your podcasts for more homegrown, cutting-edge content. Masi Cho for listening. Have a nice day.